0: This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture.
1: On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood, and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia.
0: You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert.
1: Alongside me, Matt Auer. Today we're chatting with Shanna Wan. Shanna is the founder of Sober in the Country, a non-for-profit organisation raising awareness around alcoholism in rural and regional towns with the message that it's okay to say no.
0: In this episode, you'll hear about Shanna's story of addiction, why it's so hard to say no to a beer in the bush and how she's using her lived experience to help others. Before we jump in today, I just want to give you a heads up that this episode covers some heavy subjects, including addiction, mental health and sexual assault. If you're affected by today's conversation, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. We've also put some mental health resources in the episode show notes. These are really important topics to discuss. So with that in mind, let's jump in.
1: Well, firstly, thank you very much for joining us on the show, Shanna on Beyond Farm Gate. Thanks for making some time.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it.
1: I thought we'd start with your connection to agriculture and if you could tell us how it all began.
2: Oh, look, I'm I'm a bush girl and an aggie from way back. I was born and raised in northwestern New South Wales and ag or cropping or livestock, variations of agriculture have just been a theme throughout my entire life. So, yeah, the, the ag industry is very, very close to my heart for many reasons.
1: And did you originate? in Australia? Is that where your story began or what part of the world was that first experience?
2: I'm a ring I actually was born in Zimbabwe and my family came to Australia in, oh, hang on, I'm going to have to do maths here, which is always funny with me. 1974 plus six, whatever <laughs> that made it. <laughs> this is why I don't work in banking, guys. 1980. Um, there you go. Thank you. Thanks, Annie. <laughs> So in 1980, we landed We landed in Australia and yeah, my my incredible father had $200 and two toddlers and we moved into a caravan and began life in a completely new country because sadly, Zimbabwe was going through a horrific time and that has never really stopped. But anyway, that's a separate topic for many Zooms and podcasts. But um, we emigrated when I was a kid to try and ensure that our family had a chance at a safe life, good schooling. Yeah, just a second shot in a country that wasn't being ravaged, basically.
1: Amazing beginning to agriculture. Where did you put down roots in Australia when you first turned up?
2: Our family has pretty much always been in and around northwestern New South Wales. So basically, This is the case, I think, with a whole heap of people who dwell in the rural ag space. You know, you might fly the coop and and run around the countryside and live in various places and experience various things and work in different geographic locations, but it would be safe to say that the northwest part of New South Wales has always more or less been home to myself and my family, and people who are familiar with that region would know that um, it's home to a vast array of cropping and livestock and agriculture. It's, it's a pretty prosperous sort of an area and a, and a major sort of growing region. So that's what I call home, but it's multiple homes within a home <laughs> across the course of my life, but that's as good as anything.
1: And what about from a career perspective? What were some of the first roles, I suppose, that you you took on?
2: I'm just having little flashbacks here to when I tried to be a receptionist once. I was actually really good at it because I was very friendly and very bubbly. I used to just get a bit excited by visitors and get off derailed quickly from tasks. So (laughs) I used to get caught in conversations (laughs) at the front desk and forget I actually had a job to do. How funny. That sounds familiar. Doesn't it? <laughs> it's really funny. The, chari- yeah, um, the charity, the charity, beautiful PA slash office manager that I have, Felicity, is always asking me whether I've been distracted by a shiny object. And I am so easily distracted by a shiny objects. So that was apparent pretty quickly. But. <laughs> Sorry, I was just going, see, I just got distracted by a shiny object, which is a memory of my first (laughs) job. So so what it is, right, is I sort of knew from the get-go that I loved people. I knew from the get-go that I was interactive, tactile, wanted to be with people, wanted to be doing things that had people at the centre of it. And so funnily enough, when I was going through my schooling years and then going to university and whatnot, I wanted to study communications, which would have been PR, journalism, whatever. But um, how offensive, I didn't get a good enough grade for whatever the intake was that year or something. I don't know, it's so long ago, I can't remember. And it was really funny. So that thwarted my great plans to go into what would have been just the perfect fit for me. So I think I studied some ridiculous thing. Oh, this is so embarrassing, like a Bachelor of Arts. In office management? (laughs) What does that even mean? Oh, dear me. Anyway, so I had this weird (laughs) bachelor degree in office management and I just fell into the groove of corporate ag after I left university. You know when you're pursuing things and you may as well be putting a square peg in a round hole? That was me. Like, honestly, at the time it was a bit heartbreaking, but looking back now on my career... There's some pretty funny stuff in there, such as me working for big multinational ag chem companies where, you know, I might have to speak with people about (laughs) chemical applications. And oh God, look, it was just so not a good fit for me. But thankfully, my character got me through. I sort of used to just scrape through because I was, I don't know, a little bit cheeky and a bit fun and I think people were just like, oh, we've got to help this poor girl out. She'll get the sack for sure. I'm having flashbacks again, Matt. There's a great story about when I was down in far southern New South Wales, yeah, again, working in ag chem, and (laughs) I had to go and visit this big, notoriously tough-to-crack client, and I needed to have a particular number of pallets of some bloody chemical or the other sold that month to meet a KPI, blah, 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 whatever. And I rolled into that office that day and, and and this beautiful man who's a friend of mine to this day said to me, so, Shannon, why should I support the products of Company X? I'll call it Company X, okay? And I looked at him blankly and I said, well, I don't know, just because if you don't, I'll probably get sacked. <laughs> and <I> said, oh, <laughs> the, the brutal honesty. I really need you to buy some stuff, man, because I'm, out of my job and but I need a job and honestly this this is how it went for me I was um, horrendously ill suited to so many of the jobs I did but I kept getting through because I was passionate and I was honest and I loved ag and I loved rural people so God knows how I fluffed around and (laughs) went from one job to another I mean I worked hard (laughs) and I had a go but it was just not the right fit and all the time that this was going on there might be an event coming up or there might be a show where we would all get together at a conference and any time i was involved in presenting or standing in front of a crowd and doing whatever it might be i came alive and it felt like that was where i needed to be but <laughs> millions of years ago <laughs> when i was young you just didn't go and do things cuz you knew you were good at it you were supposed to stick to what you were doing you know we we didn't have the flexibility that kids have now um, we had to stick it through otherwise we were regarded as too flighty or not serious or not committed and it's such a shame because had I if I knew then what I knew now oh my god well anyway that's life isn't it but the indicator that I was in the wrong spot was there the whole time but I kept just pushing through because it's what everyone said I must do So it's a long and funny story and despite how appallingly bad I was at multiple corporate ag roles, I have zero regrets because what it did was enabled me to travel Australia far and wide and like I said, I've worked in livestock, I've worked in grains, cotton, bloody broadacre, whatever, in various roles all over the country and anyone who's lived in rural Australia for five minutes knows that once you've worked in a few different mobs, you're connected to pretty much everyone across Australia. So it gave me the foundation of an Australia-wide network of rural people, which would come into play later in life, as we will discuss. So I had some fun, but I, I feel sorry for my old bosses. So if they're listening, I'm so sorry, guys, for sucking at my jobs.
0: <laughs> so I understand as well, Shanna, that you spent some time as a Jillaroo. Can you tell us more about that?
2: So that's going all the way back to my gap year, which is straight out of school. I wish I had grown up on a big station where my life then and my future would have been sitting on the back of a stock horse tailing cattle all day long, because that's probably where I'm at my very, very happiest. But I grew up in a cropping situation, so that wasn't for me. So I just basically pursued what I could to be hanging around livestock and horses in other aspects. So My time wasn't spent on the big traditional stations that you see, like, you know, the Top End or the the big Central Queensland or Western stations. I was on a smaller enterprise. And I do love, I love the lifestyle and the physicality and the honesty of a good day's work in the saddle. I don't think anything in the world beats it. I truly, to this day, if you were to say to me, what is your favourite way to spend a day? I would say sitting on the back of a horse all day getting hot and sweaty and dusty and thinking of nothing other than what's ahead of me, what I've got to do. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, but unfortunately for me, that didn't go in a good direction. And so my gap year ended up being probably one of the most difficult and traumatic years of my life, not because of the work, but incidents that happened in the background and a couple of traumatic events that occurred, which... Um, Made me head away from that scene as quickly as I possibly could. And I I went straight to university pretty battered and bruised after a fairly rotten gap year. So I didn't really pursue that work because of that reason, which is a shame. But yeah, I had to bail, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So you've done that. You've gone to uni. You've had a series of jobs that you knew weren't the right fit. I know you also spent some time as a rural journalist and as a photographer or when did you notice that things were starting to not feel quite right in your life and what was happening around you?
2: So going back through the annals of my own history, what I was just saying before there, Annie, that that gap year and the things that went wrong there, which, and I don't need to delve into it, but essentially sexual assault and trauma and yucky things, (laughs) that's the least offensive thing I can explain it as, Some yucky things happened to me as a young woman out on a remote station and to be really honest with you, off the back of those traumatic experiences, I basically turned to developing some unhealthy coping mechanisms and it's taken me years and years and years and years and years years to piece it all together but I now understand that things started to go wrong off the back of those events. However, they didn't really manifest in all their horrendous, ugly glory until a couple of decades later. Probably in about my late 20s, I realised life wasn't really going to plan. And, you know, it's it's a funny sort of a thing, isn't it? When we look back on events of our younger lives, the appearance was good and shiny and fun, but I was, I was not okay. I was really not okay in my deepest heart of hearts, but I I was so inexperienced and so naive in so many ways. I didn't know how to articulate that or how to identify it or or pinpoint it. But there I was drifting from one sort of job to another. And now, once again, in hindsight, because I'm older and wiser and uglier, I can now go back and go, ah, that was me being a gypsy running from myself. And there's this beautiful expression that, that, that you may or may not have heard, which is, I kept running from one thing to another, but wherever I ran to, there I was. So I couldn't figure out the problem was within me, not the job, not the town, not the career. I had a whole lot of unresolved stuff that had been smashing around in my brain for a decade at that stage. And I'll often say to people like, and all jokes about my career aside, you know, I was making fun of it before, but all jokes aside, you know, my twenties was, um, in the background of those fun bits, it was a really difficult time. Like it was a decade that I I now see had some immense tragedy peppered all throughout it, but we just didn't talk like we do now. We didn't have social media. We didn't have technology. We didn't have the connectivity that we so freely enjoy today And so I was a girl trapped in a man's world, in a man's industry, having to be tough and just get on with it and do the next thing and do the next thing and do the next thing. And probably by the time I realised I wasn't travelling so well, I was quite entrenched in destructive patterns already. So it's one of those sneaky bloody things that sneaks up on you and by the time, you know, (laughs) yucky uh, patterns or behaviour, or in my case, addiction to alcohol, by the time it had its fangs kind of sunk into me, it was very, very difficult to break away from. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And Shanna, that probably leads us on to, I suppose, our, our next topic. And before we get into the depths of sober in the country, but I'm interested in your opinion on why it is so hard to say no to a beer in the bush, because I know I've come from the country and, and it is sort of such an ingrained part of the community.
2: Look, it really is. And since as far back as I can remember, like my earliest memory as a kid about social life of any sort or kind in the country literally revolved around alcohol. First memory to the, it, like it's never stopped being that case. So any fun event, any sporting event, any gathering any celebration, commiseration, fundraisers, like there's not a single thing that I had ever been exposed to or experienced in the country that didn't have alcohol as its centerpiece. And again, going as far back as what I can recall, that's just the dumb thing. You you did deals over grog. You met people at the pub when you were young because that's where everybody went It's how you met people, it's how you do deals, it's how you do everything. It's just our rural society is very, very focused on alcohol and our, as I'll often say, you know, beer is the social lubricant that binds Bush society. It's just how it is. It's like the rising of the moon. It just is what it is (laughs) and it's how it always has been. And it's all good and well for people who don't have an issue when it comes to alcohol. It's not a drama. However, if you do have a little battle on your hands when it comes to how often you drink or how much you drink or whether you can or can't pull up, it's it's a really tough space to dwell in. I was one of those people as I was figuring out as my twenties barged on into my thirties, I was one of those people where I didn't have an off button. I couldn't pull up when I drank. I was it sort of went from being a, a party girl to an absolute bloody rat bag when it came to alcohol and Anyway, I have sort of skipped ahead a couple of questions there, Matt, but, yeah, the, the the alcohol culture and the rural space are firmly ingrained and they go hand in hand and I don't even necessarily speak about that as a, as a critical thing, as in I'm not criticising it because plenty of people can enjoy beer, no dramas. Good on them if they can. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as I've discovered firsthand since opening up about my own story, I'm one of a hell of a lot of people who when you poke the bear and delve a bit deeper, actually can't safely go there. There's actually a huge hidden underground Me Too movement of people emerging who have also had a dreadful struggle, yeah, but didn't didn't know (laughs) that there were other people struggling. So it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, really interesting.
1: I can hear it resonating with with a lot of our listeners, whether they're sort of openly admitting to it or not, but I'm interested in how you got yourself out of that habit. Were there particular things that you chose to do or some some new habits that you put in place?
2: Oh gosh, yes. When it comes to alcohol abuse or misuse or addiction or alcoholism, (laughs) call it whatever you like, there are 285 million shades of grey. I tell you what, there's all sorts of beginning and end points to the spectrum and the conversation. And what I can say is I've, I've walked the entire spectrum from, you know, curious, let's have a beer and see how it tastes, 17-year-old country girl, to end stage alcoholism, at the age of 40 and suicidal because I I thought I could not ever escape the pattern. So I guess I would love listeners to understand that I went the whole way. (laughs) I could not get off the the merry-go-round of it. So I became a chronic alcoholic. People often think that that means you must be drinking first thing in the morning or during the day or every day. And that's another thing I like to try and shed light on is actually, no, it's not even that predictable or that cut and dried. A lot of us, like me, are what we call after five alcoholics. That's just my nickname for it. We don't even necessarily drink every day and we never drink till after five o'clock, but when we do, bloody look out. (laughs) And, you know, that's how it was for me. So when I finally had my spectacular rock bottom after two decades of unresolved trauma and grief and difficulty and all of this alcohol as a mask to cover intense emotions or stress or anxiety or whatever. It all just came to a great big ugly messy head and me falling down a flight of stairs and nearly dying by breaking my neck, which by the way had been coming for a long time. How it didn't happen sooner, I'll never know. How I didn't die from a Horrifying vehicle accident or even suicide. I'll never know. I should not be here. It was that serious for me. I was in so much trouble. So, when you say, How did you break the habit? For me, I think it was well past a habit. It was a roaring, all encompassing, monstrous addiction. And to come through it and to change it and to survive, I had to literally hit the brakes and flip my life on its head. So if Shanna Wan at the age of 23 had recognised my drinking as the problem it was then, I could have done it differently. I could have taken a softer approach and just moderated and cut back and, you know, looked at my overall health and blah, 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 whatever. But the thing with addiction that people don't understand is that it begins as one thing and it ends as another and it becomes a progressive and if left untreated, fatal disease. And that's where I was at, as at the fatal catastrophic stage where I was a case of either you get sober and you understand you can never drink again or you die. That's what your choices are now. That's the point I went to. So yeah, it was very, very serious and I had to change everything that I, I basically, um, <laughs> I tried all the uh, nice, soft, fluffy options for a long time because I thought they'd be easier and less confronting, and, well, uh, I don't know, a bit less honest, I guess. And in the end, it came down to me going, okay, you are a human who can never drink again. End of story. How's your life going to look now? So I took a year, I carved a complete year out of my entire life. I stopped. And at that time, Annie, you mentioned at the start, I did photography and journalism and at that time i had found my happy place doing what i was really good at which was words and images it was it was i was so happy doing that i was a freelance photographer and journalist and i was at the top of my game traveling photographing amazing families it was beautiful it was such i was very very passionate about that and i'd found my fit but what was happening is that my photography and wedding photography and so forth was taking me to Big distances away from home where I was stuck in motels for a weekend. And what that was doing was taking me away from home and putting temptation under my nose every weekend. And so, to break all of the cycles, I literally said, Okay, well, it's all got to go. I cancelled all my jobs. I cancelled my life. I cancelled my career. And I put myself into lockdown in my own home. I spoke with my husband and my family. And I said, righto, guys, looks like I'm in big trubs and if I don't sort this out, I'm going to die. So no more travelling, no more photography, no more anything for about 12 months until I am able to cope with life. And that's about how long I reckon it took me to learn how to navigate bush life as a person who'd gone from being an alcoholic to a stone-cold sober human Holy crap, it, it was literally like learning to walk again for someone who'd been as far to the end of the crisis point as I had. And so it was all or nothing. It was just all or nothing and oh man, it was like studying actually. It was like doing a second degree. My days were structured around right. First thing you do is you get up and you go and appreciate sunshine and you go for a walk and you move your body. And then you sit down and you work on some study and some literature and you learn about this disease. Then you need to go and do something good for someone else and get out of your own head. And then you need to do this and then you have to have a sleep and then you have to eat something green and healthy, blah, blah, blah. Like I brought it back to the most basic, basic, basic level of living where it came down to rest, nutrition, study, focus, sobriety, first, second and third. It came before everything, family, work, everything. It had to. I, I just had to put it in front of everything. And thank God I had the support of my incredible husband who changed his own life to help me in that first year. So we removed alcohol from our home and our social circles. Poor. We had to, I had to make all these difficult phone calls where I rang all the people I had previously invited for parties. <laughs> for the last 10 years to say, no more parties here, guys, and, yeah, please feel free to come visit, but don't bring alcohol. We can't do that anymore. All of those sorts of things. I mean, it was intense. It was absolutely intense. But, yeah, I just had to flip my life on its head utterly, utterly. I wanted to leave. I wanted to start afresh in a new town. I wanted to move to bloody Jamaica. I just wanted to get out of my life, you know, because it was just such an extreme radical shift. But as my beautiful aforementioned husband pointed out to me, he said, no, sweaty, you've been running your whole life. you got to stop now. You have to stop and it will get better. Once you find your peace and discover who you are, this will all change. And I screamed and ranted and um, <laughs> fought him on that. But I was now utterly dependent on, on Timbo because I had no income. I had nothing. I had him and that was it. And so... I was like, "Alrighty, I'll listen to this bloke. He seems to be pretty wise <laughs> when I shut up and listen to him." And 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 it was a great strategy, and he was right. So, but it took all my time, all my money, all my effort, everything I had. It took everything I had. Yeah, it's a long answer. Sorry, guys, it's bloody hard to summarise that though. No, it it
0: actually raises something that I wanted to cover with you, Shannon. Obviously, the effects on the individual are catastrophic, but mm. I want to delve a little deeper into the impacts on family and mm. also you know when you mentioned there's this almost underground network of people that could be experiencing the same issues. Mm. When you've got a community that might have a handful of people or more experiencing this, what is the impact on the community more broadly
2: as well? Oh gosh, I reckon we're just starting to peel back the layers on that and I have to say I think I'm the only individual who's publicly questioning that on a grand scale now, because we've previously shoved that under the carpet because it's uncomfortable. The impact is massive, Annie. And I made a post about this on Instagram the other day, and I'm going to just quickly read it and share it because it really sums that up. I don't know if you saw this one. And it said, in the bush, we are encouraged to get drunk out loud. But when a problem develops, those of us in trouble, quote unquote, I've then encouraged to go somewhere else and get sober in silence. That is not how small communities should treat their wounded. So what I was observing from alcoholic Shanna to sober Shanna in all the many years in between and all the people I've spoken with and the huge amount of work I've done in this space is that we have this perverse, bizarre, completely counterintuitive thing going on in the bush where we're literally more comfortable when someone like me is at the pub repeating the same behavior and getting messy and getting carted out and you know poured into a taxi than when someone like me stands up in front of the community and says, No, I can't, I mustn't, and I need your help mm-hmm. and I need your support. We're really in our infancy when it comes to dealing with this topic and this shift in dialogue and conversation and it's bloody uncomfortable and people don't like it and I think the reason Sober in the Country has leapt ahead as a charity and and, and a national discussion and brand is because the only way it was ever going to happen was if someone who had been to hell and back who lived in bush communities spoke up and spoke the truth about it. I get a special pass because no one's going to say what would you know (laughs) because they know that I know exactly how it goes. And, yeah, so that that impact on community, it's bloody awful because um, I need to say here as a um, side thing, I don't think communities try to be jerks. I don't think anyone's sitting there premeditating how to be a rat bag when someone needs a hand. We've never been equipped to talk about it. We don't have the information and we don't have people like me who have got lived experience. Honestly, they. do you know what I'm called in sobriety circles? I'm called a lived experience expert. How fancy. (laughs) But when you've got lived experience people like me speaking up, right, suddenly the wider community gets a glimpse of this and goes, oh shit, that's pretty hardcore. That's a hard thing to go through. But because historically we have kept anything to do with alcohol addiction as a stigmatised thing that we must keep quiet and undercover and anonymous, it, it just doesn't get talked about. So communities don't know how the hell to even take the first step in dealing with it. And so, so historically, right, what we would do is say to people like me, well, you should possibly pop off and go to an anonymous meeting and get some help and support. And I've been challenging that and other views front on now for many, many years, not because those concepts are not effective. They are. They can be really, really powerfully effective tools for people where anonymity is possible. But hello, we live in teeny, tiny country communities where we are a part of the daily fabric of a community and anonymity is a farcical notion, like it's an actual joke to think that, Mm. You can sleep into your own community and suddenly become anonymous. Like, how ridiculous. But again, no one's really ever thought to challenge that or talk about it or bring that out into the open. And so we have this bizarre, I guess, roll-on effect where you're either a drinker or you're not. Bang. You're on one side of the fence or you're the other. Mm. And what I'm saying is how ridiculous. We can all be part of a community regardless of the damn choice of drink in our hand if, if, if who we are as a community is coming down to whether our beverage has alcohol in it or not, we're not doing it very well. We need to do a lot better, you know. You
0: touched on the work that you do with Sober in the Country and why, you know, you are so great in that role and advocating for this. But can you tell us a little bit about how Sober in the Country began and what you set out to achieve
2: typical of Shanna it was all very accidental Annie I'll give you the tip (laughs) (laughs) it really was hey like I was just so bloody grateful to keep waking up and not be dead in those early Mm. days I didn't have any grand plans to become what I've become so when I had to come through my own recovery and save my own life a couple of years into this and by the way, during that time, I was doing what everybody said I should do. I followed the rule books, right, which was I ran a recovery meeting in our little country town and I volunteered and I put notices up at doctor's surgeries and I did all of the things all of the people said I must do and none of them were effective, but I'll come back to that in a minute. So a couple of years of that and I looked around and I thought, geez, Louise, this is, this is a bit of a mess, isn't it? Like... I know for a fact I'm not the only person like me. I know exactly what Mm -hmm. people like me are at what pubs tonight in this town getting messy and doing the same thing they've done for years because they also can't stop drinking. (laughs) And I thought, is this really the best we can do? It doesn't seem like it is to me. And it's really funny, you know, like I said before, running a little recovery meeting it was quite a pathetic sight. I used to bake scones and open a building and sit there waiting like a little kid on Christmas Day for people to come in <laughs> so so I could offer them some, I don't know, solidarity and peer encouragement or whatever, because that's how those things work. But no one ever came, so I was just a Nigel no friend sitting in a building, eating my own scones and getting fat. Anyway, but I stuck with it because that's what everyone said I needed to do, but eventually when I'd given it what I felt was a fair time, I thought, okay, it's not that it's not effective for people who can be, say, in a big city where they can walk down a main street and, you know, walk into one of six recovery meetings where they don't know people. It's, it's just not going to work out here. I could see that. So I started thinking outside the square a bit. Anyway, I tried multiple things. I, I tried and failed and tried and failed, but I refused flatly to stop trying because I knew there was something... In my determination to crack this thing open, I just knew something had to be done by somebody. And if not me, then who? Here I was, a 40 year old woman with a lot of amazing skills. I had no children because alcohol had stolen that from me as well. So I was healthy, I was vibrant, I was feeling well, had a great head on my shoulders, lots of skills and time on my hands. So I just kept forging ahead. I just kept forging ahead thinking, no, I need to do this somehow. So I tried and tried. And in the end, I thought, okay, so your skill set is that you are a recovered alcoholic from a small country town, ripper, strange set of skills to have, but there it is. I knew I had a gift in communication and speaking and the written word and photography and I was like, hmm. And honestly, Annie, I just went, right. Oh, bugger it, I'm going to put all of those things together and I'm going to start speaking and writing and blogging about the truth And I did it all extremely carefully and extremely intentionally and extremely respectfully because I never wanted to go out there presenting as an authority or a guru or an expert. I just wanted to be a very authentic person sharing the truth of their battle against alcoholism, nothing more, nothing less. And that's really, that's what cracked it wide open in the end. So I was just sharing, I actually transferred my photography page to a page that I then relabeled Sober in the Country, which, by the way, was me taking the absolute piss out of Sex in the City. (laughs) That's how the name came about. (laughs) I know, isn't that terrible? I was just mocking that going, well, you know, let's just flip that on its head. So that's actually where the name came about. (laughs) I never knew it would become my national charity. That's
0: Fantastic. (laughs)
2: thank you (laughs) I think it's just fantastic
0: the work that you do but I also I do love the name (laughs) so what has the response been from both younger and older people within rural communities because I can imagine that there might be a slight difference in the way that they participate in this conversation
2: yes I'll go back a step if I can by saying that the response to just my stories and honesty and whatnot and again I had to build that and build it and build it but what I was finding was whatever I shared whatever I wrote about people would literally stop me in the street and say Shan wow I don't know what's going on or what made you decide to do this but thank you can can you just keep please doing it but I'm never going to comment on it because it's too scary people might think I've got a problem so it's really interesting I was like oh wow okay so the interest was almost immediate, but the interaction was very, very, very reluctant at the start. But because people consistently pulled me up and said, thank you for doing that, thank you for saying that, I just kept going because I wasn't there for for glory or riches. I was just there as a volunteer doing what I felt someone had to do. And it just kind of began to snowball, I suppose, from that. Here we are now. It's nearly seven years on, seven years down the track from a volunteer in early recovery from alcoholism to I love saying this, the CEO of a national charity. Yeah. <laughs> it just cracks me up. I just <laughs> didn't see that coming. Honestly, I didn't see that coming. And I'm just a DAG, which I'm sure you've mm. worked out by now. But as it turns out, I'm a DAG with a um, extremely non-negotiable desire and mission to be the person who changes the future of how we discuss grog in the bush. And that's what's been happening. And so I think it always was going to probably work, not because it's my face and my story. And in fact, one of the things I'll say again and again and again when I do a keynote talk is this hasn't worked because I'm special or unique or extraordinary. This is working because I'm extremely ordinary and extremely, extremely relatable to the average person in the bush who has shared this struggle I'm just the only one mad enough or brave enough or crazy enough, whatever you want to call it, to crack it open and talk about it very, very candidly at a national level. And what that has done has created courage in others to step up and start sharing as well. And so it's created its own Me Too movement, if you like. And to come back to answer your question, Annie what I have found and discovered and it's evolving all the time because to be honest with you we are pioneering this entire thing no one's ever done what we're doing so we're working it out as we go but what I've discovered is that older people in my age group right say from 40 upwards who have struggled immensely relate to my story completely but 18-year-old is landing on stations fresh out of boarding school, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed who are being exposed to the hardcore drinking culture of Australia are relating because I share that side of my story. So what's extraordinary is that whether it's an 18-year-old dilleroos on a station or a 48-year-old bloke who's looking at cirrhosis of the liver, if the people are rural and they're hardworking and they're honest and they're trapped in a cycle that they don't understand or they've got trauma or they've fallen into a horrific place, whatever, the relatability is the same. This message is relevant to anyone who lives in the country pretty much. It's relevant. Hmm. And in seven years of speaking to, oh, God, I don't know how many people we've reached. I mean our Australian story episode alone was viewed by millions We reach 100,000 on average on our social media posts now. Not once in seven years of me working like a dog day and night in this space have I ever had an individual come up to me and say, Shanna, what in the name of God are you on about? I've never heard such nonsense. I've had the toughest, roughest, burliest, most hard-to-crack blokes from stations in the middle of nowhere come up to me on the quiet and say, it's bloody good stuff, mate, thank you for doing that. I'm five years sober. Or my best mate died because he got drunk and rolled his you Or this is my father, my mother, my, whatever. What I'm saying is this mm. conversation is literally something that everyone in the bush has skin in the game with. They might not have an issue, but they've got a friend who always does the crazy stuff on the grog. Or they themselves have realised they can't pull up once they start or they're a mum who's terribly concerned that their teenage kid is being fed bottles of rum on the annual beach holiday by someone else's parent, or whatever it might be. There's just a concurrent thread of people acknowledging that we pretty much idolise grog in the bush, and that can lead to really serious problems for some of us. But what I have to throw in here now, in case I forget to, is that we're not anti-alcohol, right? Something I am at absolute pains to talk about and and you can imagine why well, imagine if I went onto a station in the middle of nowhere and started evangelizing about the evils of alcohol I'd be kicked out before I even got through the main gate not to mention the fact <laughs> you know not to mention the fact that yeah good luck <laughs> I, I was the biggest drinker of all like dirt <laughs> but it's amazing how many people <laughs> it's amazing how many people mm. don't stop to consider I'm not against alcohol and I'm not against people who enjoy drink. My darling husband loves a beer. There's beer in our fridge, right? Mm. So I am not anti-alcohol and Sober in the Country as a national charity is not anti-alcohol. What we're doing is being pro-awareness, pro-conversations, pro-choice so that no matter what our mates drink or their reason or choice to drink or not to drink, we get over being heroes about it, going, what's wrong with you? You used to be fun. Have a beer. No. up." that's what we're attacking there. We're going after that vernacular in the Australian culture and saying, come on, guys, it's 2021. If someone says no to a drink, get over it and pass them the soda water because that's the heart and soul of the issue right there. It's not changing people's right to do whatever the hell they want to. It's more so accepting their choice to do what they need to and not questioning it. And that's what we've really worked out in these last seven years is that because we are so passionate about our love affair with grog in the country, if someone dares to say no, (laughs) we are pre-programmed to challenge that. And so we are now re-pre-programming everyone to say, don't, don't challenge it. That could be another Shanna right there. Just just calm down, grab her a soda water and keep rolling. (laughs) does it matter you know so anyway that's that's something very very important people need to be aware of because um it's just about choice and supporting our mates and that that's how our campaign the okay to say no campaign was born we don't care if you drink what we care about is that you make it okay to say no for your mates and once we shift that conversation we're saving lives it's bloody simple it's that simple but holy moly to crack this conversation and get everyone on board and around to that way of thinking has literally taken me as an individual I think I 15,000 hours and then we became a charity and then another several years after that I mean I've just I've I've worked so hard for so long to get this out there but it's now out there and people are completely accepting and supportive and they're now on board and they now get it and the response is now overwhelmingly positive. It's so beautiful.
1: I'm glad you made that point because I think it's a, bit, a big factor of your success, I suppose, over the last seven years. Before we wrap up, I thought I'd ask what ongoing success looks like for Sober in the Country. Where where to from here?
2: Oh, look, Matt, I mean, I've got a couple of massive, massive projects in the pipeline which I'll keep secret squirrel for the minute because I don't want to um, jinx them. <laughs> But literally <laughs> to to forever change the course of how we discuss grog in Australia is is the big goal. Do you know what? I go to sleep dreaming about the day a man walks into a bar in the outback and says no thanks to a beer and nobody bats an eyelid. That's where we want to be headed as a community and as, a, as an mm. outback family is a day where alcohol doesn't define a man and it, the ability to drink grog for hours and hours on end doesn't define a man where we as a community are supporting each other no matter what and just taking care of ourselves so you know like I said earlier we are pioneering this stuff but we're here to save lives and we're most importantly of all here to prevent people falling through the cracks and I'll give you my favorite quote to sum it up which is a um, beautiful quote from Desmond Tutu which says you know there comes a time where we've got to stop pulling people out of the river when they've drowned and we need to go upstream and find out why they keep falling in. And that's what we're doing. We're going upstream over and over until one day we're not pulling anyone out because they are drowned. That's the goal. Yeah.
0: And, Sean, we'll pop some resources in the episode notes, but if there is some themes that we've talked about today that particularly resonates with someone, if your story mm. particularly resonates with them, what yeah. would be your message to them?
2: If you're listening to this podcast and some still small voice within you has been consistently saying for a while, I think there might be a problem, listen to that voice, don't ignore it, don't push it down and certainly don't listen to popular opinion from people who don't know you like you know yourself. Take action and have a look at it and what I would encourage listeners to do is with our charity, we have a beautiful peer support network. Called the Bush Tribe. If, if listeners go to soberinthecountry.org and click on Bush Tribe, there's a tab there that explains what that is. But essentially, it's a group we have of hundreds of people who can anonymously and safely share their own experiences in a non-judgmental space online. I can't strongly enough say to people, you need to connect with others. There's actually scientific proof that the opposite of addiction is connection. So once we get people talking and connected and in a safe environment with others that can encourage them, what we're giving them is a soft place to land, talk and feel safe and grow their courage and then go and do the next things that they need to do with clinicians or whatever. So take action. Listen to that still, small voice and take action and be bold and be fearless and be courageous because... The one thing we do not talk about anywhere near enough is the joy of sobriety and how flipping amazing life without a hangover actually is. And again, in that bush tribe and on our social media, we're constantly sharing stories about rural professionals who have given up or cut back alcohol and the massive, massive flow on effects to their lives from health to savings to weight loss to vastly increased productivity, relationships being restored like there is so much good stuff in it and what's very very happily happening is leaders in in the ag industry whether it's pastoral companies or banks or whatever you know those of you guys who see the merit in this conversation are leading the charge in passing that on within their networks and guess what suddenly employees are better and productivity is going up within companies and businesses there's just so much good in it. There is just so much good in it. So come and get amongst it. Come and come and help me keep making sobriety trendy because that's what's happening if you can even believe it. It's quite amazing.
0: <laughs> to wrap us up, I want you to cast your mind back to what we talked about earlier and one of your favourite things to do is be out on the horse, getting hot, getting dusty, getting <laughs> sweaty. And a question that we ask all of our guests is when you're out on farm. What work boots do you wear?
2: Ah, oh, <laughs> redbacks. I love them as a plug for redbacks. Oh, I don't I think we've had really that answer.
1: No, I don't think we have. Really?
2: Yeah. Well, they're kind of, I, I used to it. be a Blundstones girl. I used to be a Blundies girl, but I think by default one time they didn't have them and I got redbacks and they were squishier and softer so <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I wear them now I'm a very I'm a very classy girl you should see me getting around the paddock in my flannies and my red backs. I'm some serious style queen <laughs> so that's my choice <laughs> love it thank you so much for
0: chatting with us today Shanna it's been fantastic it's been quite emotional for me at times I've yeah I've really connected to what you've said today and thank you so much for coming oh. on for a chat
2: Thank you, Annie, and and, ah, huh, yeah, thank you, thank you. We'll talk because I love it when this happens. This is what happens. We we get conversations going. So thank you to you guys for hosting it, and yeah, our heartfelt prayer all the time is that we're just reaching people so they know they're not in this alone. So thanks to you guys for that. Thanks, Shannon.
1: Thanks, Shannon.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow.
1: If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now.
0: And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert.
1: And I'm Matt Au, and we'll chat to you next time.